everybody, and welcome back to the Chiluminati Podcast, episode 117. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by Alex Bassiane and Jesse Cox. Hi. Cox. I had Cox. What uh, was, I'm sorry, what was that? I stuttered. Jesse. <laughs> Jesse Cox. Jesse Weenus. <laughs> oh, shit. Jesse Weenus is like the guy who's like, the like you comment on like YouTube videos and stuff. Um, I don't like the way this guy's voice sounds. Uh, signed Jesse Weenus. <laughs> What's with this guy who just doesn't believe everything? Get him off the show. He sucks. Signed, His last name's dumb. Signed yeah. Jesse Weenus. Signed Jesse Weenus. <laughs> Friday, more like fly away from this bad song day. Love Jesse Weenus. <laughs> wow. That was a stretchy one, but hey, you know what? You made it work as best you could, Alex. <laughs> and you know what's making us work as best oh, as we can, Mathis? What? What is that? Tell Patreon. me, Patreon.com. And I'll tell you, if you go to patreon.com slash pod, I think, you know, when the Grinch goes and he helps everybody out and then they show the little meter of his heart yeah. and it like gets so big that it breaks the meter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what's going to happen to you, uh, except it's going to be healthy. Don't worry about it. It's, don't worry about your heart. It's going to be OK. Don't think too hard about this. Uh, it's a great place to be. It keeps us on the air weekly. Every week you get all kinds of great benefits. If you sign up talking about colors on your name in discord, don't forget that one talking about every episodes, another good free one. episodes, something that a lot of people complain about for some reason. Uh, <laughs> there's also, uh, you know, free uh art that you can look at and get and access that you know uh and and most importantly 15 more minutes of chiluminati instantly plus access to a library of four million frames of <laughs> chiluminati goodness at least at least four million, four million frames? frames i don't think you can promise that <laughs> probably more probably more than four million frames i don't think you can promise that way way more than four million mm, frames. i, I do not gar- i do not guarantee that these extra episodes are videos because they are not <laughs> they are, are still no, podcasts there are no frames involved whatsoever uh but oh, please we- come support us over there because it's a good place and we like it and it's a nice thing to be paid to do it's this cozy job. we love yeah. it so much thank over you there. <laughs> yeah yeah uh speaking on a tangent our artist who does the posters and over over there for uh, patreon mel yes uh, she actually just got her own hot topic online store for her specific merch the few days Yo. ago so just shout out to her for something that she'd been working years for she was saying that she finally got if you want to check her out just google uh, just go to hottopic.com slash creators slash artists slash studio electra well deserved uh, well yeah, deserved. Man, she just does such good work and uh just love to see her get supported so uh, go check out a couple shirts that she's got out there. They're sick. And you can see some work she's done for us at patreon.com. Exactly. Every month for like almost a year now. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It um, is crazy. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's been that long. Uh, I, I can't take this. This is going back to you, Alex. It's in your hands today. I want to just shout you guys out for sometimes just showing up. And you, I, I know neither of you have any idea what I've brought. Yet you've no. shown up even somebody asked me what Alex is doing. And I'm like, he just said, we're going to like it and it's going to be weird. Even considering like my track record, <laughs> you guys come yeah, you're, you're, each time ready <laughs> don't to, do to yourself entertain a disservice. Me. All right. Listen, your track record was good. 
with the exception of one, but we can't even judge you on that because Asterisk. the trilogy isn't finished. Asterisk, it's not that's done. right, exactly. You might you might send that thing home with like a masterpiece of an episode. I exactly. don't believe that one bit. I don't will know. Will it be where, Return of the Jedi? We're never going to see that. We're going to forget well, will it be the rise years? of Skywalker. No, this is it's coming. No. It's right after I do my JFK episode, I'll do that. I promise. <laughs> uh, never gonna happen. Okay. I don't think. I don't think it, I don't, we're never gonna see the end of it. Oh, we are. <laughs> we are. Trust me. Trust me on that. You don't even know where that story's going. And are we gonna? Are we about to get I. into a surprise two-parter? By the way, you're the George R.R. Like- R. Martin of <laughs> strange stories on this podcast. One you're of the best selling. Uh, one of the best-selling strange story writers of all time. And, and also, in, and also in, preeminent disappointment writing strength <laughs> maybe i'll end up writing strange stories with storied japanese no. game developers it doesn't no, matter the next step for you is to just make a movie on the green stone first or a couple or tv series on the I'm green stone and finish that, first. that the guy who found the green stone would be super down to produce that with me i'm almost <laughs> i'm almost positive he would be that dude is hustling with the green stone uh but that's neither here nor there uh this week because we got something totally different this week. And I think, I think this is going to be a good one. Surprise two parter, no comment, but we will see (laughs) because, okay, here we go. A while ago, you will remember that I did an episode called dark corners because everything I covered was very messed up. A while ago is putting it lightly. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you the exact day. It was like a year ago. I think it was way further back. Was it really? Yeah. I am pretty sure that sucker. Oh, you! It was episode sixty-two, so over half the podcast ago, yeah. but only ever so barely. Yeah, uh, it's not, over know, a year ago, a but not by much. You were you were closer than I thought we a were. Yeah, we're like Can a you year remind a me what this is? Because I don't yeah. know what this is. It was a, it was like a montage one that was like a bunch of stuff, and it was called Dark Corners because everything was really sort of disturbing uh, and messed up. Uh, that was the one where you brought up the girl who like streamed her life in yeah, like her yeah. apartment. The chick who thought she was being watched and she had like stuff under her skin and all that stuff. And yeah, she's like yeah, yeah. on live stream all the time. Yeah, that one. Uh, and really what today's script started out was, was a sequel to that episode, like Dark Corners 2 or something. Like uh, if you remember when after the summer, when the twist came out, Chubby Checker decided to put out another song the next summer that was called Let's Twist Again. Uh, which was a hilarious thing. And I think he's a genius. So I decided to copy him. Uh, but once I actually started. Like we did uh, last summer. Yeah. Come on, let's buy this song again. Like we did last summer. I was like making all that money. Let's do it again. That's, that's the song. That is yeah, the that song. Is it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, once I started sifting through Reddit and YouTube and all the forums and listicles, I kept looking back up at that word dark at the top of my outline and thinking to myself, like, is this really dark? I don't know. So then I decided most of these things are more like weird things than they are edgy things. And there's really not a lot else that ties them together because it's a pretty broad range of things that I'm covering today. So really, if we're if we're talking about the twist and the twist again, it's not really so direct as that. It's more like if the original episode was Happy Days and this okay. this episode is like the Mork and Mindy spinoff to that episode. It's not even like okay, oh, okay, all right. 
All right. Yeah. I got you. I, I uh, want to qualify that that doesn't mean I'm not going to get creepy or upsetting at parts because I definitely am. Uh, I'm just going to be focusing a lot more on how weird these things are than I will on shocking the shit out of you. Uh, it's just a bunch of little things that didn't merit a whole episode because they're really interesting things. I want to make them, you know, I, I think people should hear about them because they're really exciting. And I think a lot of them you won't have heard. Uh, but yeah, they're, 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 none of them are very long enough to like carry an hour on their own. Uh, but content warning for this episode, uh, because we got murder, we got sexual violence, we got suicide uh, ideation, we got violence against animals. I think we have actual suicide, maybe. And a couple things are just really, really freaky and might stay with you for a while. So chill out. Don't worry. Um, oh, and one last thing before I get into this. I don't want to gloat too much, uh, but I think this episode is like fairly airtight. Like, I'm not going to toot my own horn too early. <laughs> But I almost want to say this episode is 100% Jesse proof. What do you think about that? Uh, it would be a first. I, I, don't, I don't believe you, but we'll see. let's see. We'll see. Regardless, here are 13 of the weirdest things I've found out there on the internet. Like I said, that didn't merit a whole episode, but that I still think okay. are worth sharing. Can I, I clickbait? title this then if we got 13 you won't believe like number 13, 13 you things you won't believe alex found on the internet yes, well if it's perfect. if it's mathis you're gonna believe all of them if it's jesse you won't believe can i do the numbering seven. for this yeah yeah uh, <laughs> okay start so number, with us, number 13 yeah <laughs> so this one's called ghost watch uh first ghost one watch yeah first one is uh light it's easy it's like a snack appetizer because mm. it's light on actual paranormal elements, uh, and there's really not all that much to the mystery of it. Uh, but it's just interesting. It's like a rice snack, like a rice crispy kind of like a, yeah, like like a, a rice, rice wafer. Like a rice, yeah, like a rice cake. Yeah, yeah like, okay, yeah. okay. Uh, put a little nutritional yeast on there, spice it up with some black mm. pepper, get it going. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but uh, I don't know. Something about this captures my imagination. I love it. And once I'm done telling it, I bet you'll find it interesting, too. Shout outs to this Guardian article I pulled from 1992. It has no author. Uh, and also shout out to Kate Mossman for her article on the New Statesman about this. But I am not going to read the title of it because it is a spoiler. Uh, anyway, Ghost Watch, 90 minute long British pseudo documentary horror film. That was shown on BBC One on Halloween night, 1992, as part of the BBC anthology series uh, Screen One. Uh, and this episode was particularly interesting because even though it was fully scripted and featured full on actors, it was presented to the public as a live broadcast as if it were the on air investigation of a house in a part of greater London that's called Norholt where it was said that bizarre poltergeist activity was like regularly taking place. Right. So they're like, it's like any, any other time besides while it was airing, they were saying it was, it was totally uh, fake, but during it was real. Uh, and at first the reporters see the whole thing as kind of like a dumb joke. Uh, and they start off the night kind of like pranking each other, like putting on masks, hiding places uh, while real viewers from the public actually call into the studio to share ghost stories. When you, when you called in, it would be like, hi, this is fake, but please <laughs> share a story with us. Right. So that's like kind of how it went. Uh, but so many people were calling in cause it was really popular cause it was on Halloween that a lot of people weren't even getting a voicemail that was like, hi, this is fake. Some people were just getting like the busy signal. So nobody, like a lot of people who were trying to call never heard that. And that's important. Um, 
Uh, turns out that uh, basically what they're doing is there's they're listening to these calls. There's the reporters on the location. And then in the studio, there's a paranormal expert and another host who are like talking about what's going on at the house. So they're kind of doing it like I think some ghost hunting shows have done things like this in real life since then. This was in the 90s. So it was kind of like old school, but this was what it was. So it turns out whenever the kids uh, in the house would ask their mom what the weird noises in the walls were. This is like the people that they're investigating, right? Even sure. though she knew it wasn't natural, she said it was just the pipes. And, and eventually that's what the ghost started to be known as was pipes. And in reality, he's supposed to be a man called Raymond Tunstall who used to live in the house with his aunt and uncle and who was driven crazy by another ghost from the 1800s called Mother Seddons, who was one of those like child trafficker, baby stealer, Victorian lady type people. <laughs> I, like, you know, I know those types. Yeah. I know that's like weird, but that's totally a type of person. Uh, sometimes she would even murder kids, apparently. But again, this is all in the movie. And then the real caller stories that were coming through that were from real people started to like, they'd like start rotating in like planted scripted stories about mm. other families around England who were like, you know what? That pipes situation sounds really familiar. And we have a ghost in our house who looks a lot like pipes. And then the stories start to get violent. And then someone gets hurt in the house. And then during the broadcast, they make it seem like real time events are happening all around the country. People are calling in like, I don't know what's happening. Like the same thing that's happening in my house is happening in, in on TV. Like it's happening at the same time. I don't know what's going on. Um, and the expert realizes that by airing the show, they're kind of like having a seance with the whole country together. And it's like powering the ghosts up. Uh, one of the hosts gets like dragged down a hallway. I actually love that yeah. idea. That the, the fact that the seance is just because it's so many people, it just powers them it up like a super clever. saiyan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one host gets like dragged down a hallway. The lights go out in the studio. Uh, the main guy in the studio is like running around in the dark while the t cameras are still on. And he finds a teleprompter running and he starts reading like a nursery rhyme, like in a creepy way off of it. And then he like starts talking with the voice of pipes and it was like really scary and it freaked people out. Lots of people got really mad, wrote nasty letters and all this stuff. But there are people online who think that maybe uh, just like some other things, like there's uh, a copy of the Berserk arcade game that like claimed two lives. Uh, there are a couple things that, happened as a result of this airing that make people wonder whether or not there was something more to it or something particularly disturbing or upsetting about the show. Not that it was necessarily real, but that maybe something about the way that it was staged or something was somehow affecting the people who were watching it. Um, first, there was an 18-year-old with learning disabilities called Martin Denham from Nottingham who was said to have like the mental age of like 13, even though he was 18, he was just, he had some like developmental issues and learning disabilities. And he lived with his family in Bestwood park while working days in a factory. Um, five days after ghost watch aired, the central heating system in his house failed and literally caused the pipes in his walls to knock together, just like in the show, which he saw. And apparently it freaked him out so badly that he took a plastic hose hanged himself from a tree outside. Oh my and God. left a suicide Jesus. note behind, which said, please don't worry. If there are ghosts, I will be with you always as a ghost. 
So, uh, all right then. Yeah, that was, that's pretty intense. It totally happened. His parents fully blamed the BBC for it and said that ghost watch had hypnotized and obsessed their son after watching it. And it wasn't uh, enough to get them any sort of recompense from the BBC because obviously the BBC really did like cross their T's and dot their I's about making this thing seem real. But you know, some people did tune in mid broadcast or miss it, or maybe you have a learning disability. Like and war of the worlds. Yeah. Yeah, you maybe you don't quite understand, I mean, you know, the idea even of more something modern. Being fake. Like we've had issues here. We, do you remember the mermaid yeah. documentary documentary yeah. from, from Discovery that they did everything they could to make that look real and people fucking bought it? And then they did it again with the Megalodon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Super weird. Uh, but, uh, you know, that wouldn't be that interesting of a situation on its own, except just kind of more of a sad story if it was only this one case. But there were also two other children mentioned in a report from the Brit- British Medical Journal two years later in 1994 who were affected by the show. Uh, two 10-year-old kids reportedly developed ghost watch-induced PTSD. Oh, my uh, the God. First, yeah, the oh first God, ever man. reported uh, to have been caused by a TV show. Uh, and once the report came out, further articles were released where four more cases were reported uh, in kids between ages 11 and 14, as well as in some elderly people. But the but eventually, uh, you know, this is similar to the uh, thing that happened in Japan in the 90s with the Pokemon anime. I don't know if you remember that this is like an it's almost like an urban legend that there was like an episode uh, about Porygon that like got removed oh, from yeah. all broadcasts f- later where there was like strobe effects on the show and it was like messing with people and like upsetting them. And like it started, it was like kind of like a mix of mass hysteria and some real events and people just sort of like all played into it together a little bit uh, and just kind of got kind of hyped up about it in a weird sort of way. So maybe there was just something about ghost watch that really just resonated with people and scared the shit out of them. Uh, but we will probably never know. Uh, it is worth mentioning, uh, however, that Stephen Volk, the original writer of Ghostwatch, actually released a sequel short story to the show uh, called 31 out of 10, where uh, he and he published that, by the way, in a collection of stories, which was called, wait for it, Dark Corners. Oh, coincidence, shit. mysterious, uh, just like the episode of Basis off of, you remember. Uh, but also, <laughs> if you uh, if you want, you used to be able to get a free PDF of this story on his website, and that is gone now. But if enough people remind me, I may have it. I may have it. So I don't know what I'll do with it, but I may have the story. And I wouldn't share it. I would tell you to go buy that book, except <laughs> that the book is over $100. Uh, it's like not in print. So if you want to just read this one story, I'm happy to do it uh, just for this story. Uh, and you can't share it with anybody else. Uh, but anyway, uh, that is Ghost Watch. Up next, we have uh, one of these wonderful, weird stories that's just got so many unbelievable and bizarre details that it seems impossible. But it's so also it's the second story. Well, yeah. Uh, but story it's also number from, two. <laughs> number two. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's also from antiquity. Uh, there's also so much evidence called? for it in the uh, historical record. Uh, it feels like. Uh, okay. It's what is called, it called? It's the story of Terar. The story of Terar. Uh, <laughs> this version Amazing. of the story uh, largely comes from an article at allthatsinteresting.com by Mark Oliver. Uh, but this time I am going to have to tell you the title because it's in- instantly captivating. Uh, in fact, I'm going to have Jesse read it cold because it'll probably make it even better. Where should I put this? Let's see. I don't know. I'm about to sneeze. 
I'm gonna put in the I'm gonna put in the chat. You're about to sneeze? You come yeah, I can't sneeze, I can't sneeze! You got those oh. wildfire blues? Uh, you right, said my name and I was ready to read and The Story of Terror. The insatiable glutton who ate everything from human flesh to live eels. Yeah. What? So, all right. Wait, <laughs> voice. I gotta ask you a yeah. question. I just because I enjoyed if you could get yourself some like we'll say like properly taken care of with consent, like a piece of human meat Whoa, from a where restaurant. Where are we going? Yeah, I'm just like, or you could go to a restaurant where you could get like. Are you asking me what I'm kind of piece of word. meat I want to eat? Human meat? Would you? No, just a simple question. If you had the opportunity, I got an answer, but eat, it's dirty. <laughs> would you? Would you eat it? If you could eat human meat that was taken from, I get, like. I'm trying to think of the word. I only got uh, some uh, jokes for you, man. I only got dirty jokes for you. <laughs> some people do that for years. Like a piece of thigh. Like a piece of thigh meat from from A piece from of thigh? Yeah, I've been doing yeah. that for years, my friend. <laughs> Somebody cut a piece of their butt off and served it while they were alive just to have it be fresh. And they cooked up a little piece of their butt. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. that seems... I just I have no interest what? in it because it's it seems gross. It seems... It seems weird to eat person. It seems That's uh, what I feel like too. Like, but if it was humanely sourced human meat, I get it. I get it. I I could be convinced. It was like a super expensive, nah. like one restaurant where you could get it. It's from like you know individuals who've probably passed away. I don't know how you get it. That, no, human meat. Want dead old people <laughs> flesh. Or you know, you could try yourself a slice off a piece of your own butt Here's cheek. The thing. Like that guy. No, did. I know. I know. I probably taste terrible. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm not like I'm not like one of those wagyu beef uh, like fed. <laughs> I know that wagyu beef fed. I know I am beef. I am McDonald's quality meat, my friend. <laughs> I know what I am. You you have no idea actually. Uh, if you think you're bad, let me tell you about Tayrar. Uh, because oh, holy shit, Tayrar was a French revolutionary soldier who was first noticed in the 1790s shoveling fistfuls of garbage into his mouth from the gutter. Uh, apparently, his appetite was so large that even though they had literally quadrupled his army rations, he would still like go out and eat trash just to fill up because he was Wait, so how hungry. How big was this guy? Was he like? That's the well, weird part. No matter what he did, he didn't even weigh a hundred pounds. He seemed constantly wiped out distracted, malnourished and starving. And everybody wanted to get rid of him in the army because apparently not only was he just like an actual drain on their resources, like because he ate so fucking much and he was like insanely distracting for everybody, but his body was so hot to the touch. His sweat smelled like sewer water and his BO smelled so disgusting that quote, a visible vapor rose out of his body, like real life cartoon stink lines. (laughs) What? You can see him coming from a mile away. I already have a theory about what's going on with this dude, but I need you to say it because it's super gross. We we know we know this information because of this these people called Dr. Courville and Baron Percy, who are two military surgeons who were just so obsessed with this guy that over the years they just documented it and just couldn't let it go on without being documented because it was like a medical oddity to them and it was like blowing their minds. Uh, And apparently According to discussions they had with Terrar, uh, he had had this problem his entire life to the extent that when he was a teenager, he was actually kicked out of his house by his parents because they couldn't afford what it took to feed him. 
It was just, Good he ate so Lord. much food that he got kicked out of his house. I feel like instead of kicking him out of the military, they have like, there's an opportunity sitting in front of them. Like the generals have him by his side and just eat military secrets. If anybody's well, coming to invade, just like hand him over and you just, you know, gone. it's funny. It's funny. You should say that. Well, uh, <laughs> after a while, Terar decided that if he was going to have this problem, he might as well profit off of it. So he joined up with a troop of prostitutes and thieves <laughs> and he toured around France <laughs> He turned around so, France. I mean, eat, fucking perfect. He turned dude, around France. Perfect. Yeah, eating. He was eating weird shit on stage while the audience was like pussy on stage. He dude. would eat, and then the audience would like get worked over by the pickpockets because they were so amazed at the weird fucking shit that he was doing. Uh, I, I know this all sounds like impossible and fake, but Mathis, here's a quote for you to read so uh, from a book of medical curiosities about this guy. Here we go. Fantastic on Zoom. Yeah, it's on Zoom. Okay. <clears throat> He was found of the most revolting things. Fond. He particularly fond. Fought, oh, fond. Whoops, I thought I said found. He was fond of the most revolting things. He particularly relished the flesh of serpents and would quickly devour the largest. In the presence of Lorenz, he seized a live cat with his teeth, venerated it, sucked its blood, and ate it, leaving the bare skeleton only. In about 30 minutes, he rejected the hairs. He rejected the hairs in the manner of birds of prey and carnivorous animals. What? So he just like fucking hairballed out all yeah. the fur. Yeah, exactly. What? He ate it like a fucking fish eats of, uh, I mean, a cat eats a fish in a cartoon where he just <laughs> pulled out a cat skeleton and then he barfed all the shit up that he didn't want to digest. <laughs> he, oh God. <laughs> he also ate dogs in the same manner. On one occasion, it was said that he swallowed a living eel without chewing it, but he had first bitten off its head. He ate almost instantly a dinner that he that had been prepared for 15 vigorous workmen and drank the accompanying water and took their aggregate allowance of salt at the same time. What? After this meal, after this meal, his abdomen was so swollen that it resembled a balloon. All I can think of is that sketch. Was it Monty Python yeah. where he's just so fucking huge? It's from the movie, yeah. From, yeah. Uh, yeah. And now from something completely different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So good. Yeah. Or no, The Meaning <laughs> of Life. No, what's that one called? I can't remember the it name It might be it. The Meaning of Life. Life of Brian. Maybe it, no, Meaning life of, of Life. I'm right. I'm, 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 I'm second guessing myself. Uh, also, <laughs> apparently, right after blowing up huge like a balloon like that, he would just hop in and out of the bathroom leaving something in there that the two military surgeons described as quote, feted beyond all conception. <laughs> this dude is a walking biological yeah. weapon. Yeah. And his weird, like stretchy, empty skin would sag down so far that you could tie it around his waist like a belt. Uh, anyway, <laughs> once France was at war with Prussia and Tirar was once again fighting for his country, the general Alexandre de Beauharnais had the idea to have Tirar eat a wooden box with a message inside uh, and, and then have someone sift through his shit to see if it was legible once it came out the other side. Uh, <laughs> turned out it was. So they immediately <laughs> sent him behind enemy lines uh, into Prussia with a message box in his stomach and disguised himself as a Prussian peasant. But he literally smelled like shit and couldn't speak German. So they discovered him pretty much immediately and they had him stripped and whipped all day until he broke and he mentioned that he had a box in his stomach. They chained him outside to a toilet for hours until he finally shit. Uh, but all they found inside the box was a message asking the recipient to let General de Beauharnais know if the package got there. Okay. His plan was failed. Uh, so they didn't even the they didn't even trust him. They just sent him like a fake message. Uh, Terrar was said to be hung for wasting the Prussian army's time, uh, but cried so hard on the gallows they took pity on him and sent him back behind the French lines. 
Uh, and when he came back, he worked with the military surgeons to try and cure his condition uh, by eating things like laudanum and tobacco pills and wine vinegar. Uh, but none <laughs> yeah, of that worked. Uh, yeah, no surprise. Yeah, there. nothing worked. And Terar kept getting hungrier and hungrier until he started getting caught drinking the bad blood that used to get bled from people in the hospital oh, and the eating hell? dead bodies at the morgue. This is true. Uh, and then all of a sudden, a 14 month old baby mysteriously dis- disappeared. <laughs> And there was like a rumor. There was like a rumor that Terar ate it. I say one year and two month old baby. Uh, And so the army washed their hands of Terar once and for all after that, regardless of whether it was true. We don't know Uh, until four years later, when Terar was found to be dying of tuberculosis in a hospital in Versailles, Baron Percy went out to see him. That medical guy went out to see him off in his last days. And even though he reported that the smell that came out of him when he died was exponentially worse than anything that came out of him while he was alive. His his stomach's just a jumbled digestive pit of hell. Yes. He also stayed around for the autopsy. And I got a quote uh, from from the autopsy for Jesse to read. Uh, just to give us an idea of what it's like, here comes the oh, man. Here comes this the man quote is, from I, the just, I just, I just want to know. I just want. I can imagine them like throwing on like a, an, a, the enemy's uniform and just looking him up and down and being like, "Fuck it, send him." Like, who cares? Yeah. It's not going to work. Exactly. He doesn't speak a lick of German and just walks across with shit in his pants. Absolutely, Sorry, go ahead, Jesse. The entrails were putrefied. This is the guy's voice. Putrefied, <laughs> confounded <laughs> together, and immersed in pus. The liver was excessively large. Void of consistence and in a putrescent state. <laughs> the gallbladder was of considerable magnitude. The stomach in a lax state and having ulcerated patches dispersed about covered almost the whole of the abdominal region. I thought I thought for sure they were going to cut this guy open and find like a giant worm living in him. <laughs> you thought they were going to like some kind of weird it parasite? It does sound like when people usually in like when people get super hungry and they eat weird stuff, eventually they cut them open. They find out there's a parasite in there. I, yeah, there is, swore that's what there, was gonna is, happen. there is some sort of like I forget what the word is for it, but there is like a symptom that is called being super hungry all the time. I forget what the real name of it is, but there's like a thing. But it's not like it's a disease on in its own. It's like a symptom of other things. Uh, and so nobody knows what, what happened with him. Uh, they also found that his stomach uh, filled his entire abdominal cavity uh, and that his jaw could open so wide that quote, a cylinder of a foot in circumference could be introduced without touching the palate. That's, that's insanity, dude. That's like, that's like, supernatural like the mummy he drops his yes, jaw yes, down exactly <laughs> uh, but, no ev- way. but eventually no way. yeah but eventually the smell during the autopsy got so bad that they decided oh to stop doing it halfway through the autopsy uh and uh that is everything that we know about this very seemingly real dude from the 18th century called called terrar <laughs> just uh, imagine the doctors do like you know what fred i'm done yeah, he's just dead that's he's dead. and then you know that he smells it, and that's cares? enough for us i don't want to ever look at this dead man again <laughs> uh yeah and i mean you can look this guy up t-a-r-r-a-r-e he is all over the place and he is just it seems like he's fucking real he is all wow. over the historical record i have that no guy, idea that's what to tell terrible you. that guy <laughs> yeah what a life yeah wow so far so good though right nothing nothing outrageous I feel like I'm, I'm worried now. I'm worried. Now I'm worried. You shouldn't be. I feel like I'm crushing this so far. That's two out of 13. Yeah. yeah you got 13. 13. 13. We, are, <laughs> we haven't even crossed three. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Speaking, Speaking of three. Speaking of which. Yeah. Number three. 
Yeah, perfect. <laughs> uh, and I guess this part of the show can be called our section Francaise because here is another story from France, which I cleverly decided to call. Ready? Here we go, Jesse. Underground French cinema. Underground French cinema. Great. Perfect. We have our own little chills on here. Not as mean so, as the so, real uh, chills. Yeah, I'm more like a... Like a you know, have, I'd have him on in a heartbeat. Chilly. The, chills, the chills Luminati? <laughs> you can just bring him on for a guest episode. You're the legitimately chill chills? <laughs> you like Chillbowski? I gotta stop. All right. Uh, <laughs> underground French cinema. Shout out to a Gizmodo article by Shawn Michaels for this one. Not that Shawn Michaels. Uh, but again... Can't say the title. It blows the surprise. But just like always, uh, just bug me enough. I will share all the links and shit on the subreddit. It's fine. Uh, But here we go. Back in the summer of 2004, uh, some police officers in Paris were down in the catacombs beneath the city, past the point where the public is normally allowed to go, in order to carry out some sort of training mission, okay? Uh, It was underground and it was hella dark. So they had things like flashlights and headlamps. Uh, but they couldn't see very well, so it was probably really, really freaky when out of nowhere, they suddenly heard the sounds of snarling, barking dogs coming from literally all around them. And it seemed so real to the officers that some of them even called out to the dogs to see if they could get them to calm down. Um, but as they like slowly spread out and like tried to figure out what the fuck was going on in the dark, uh, they were actually pretty shocked uh, at what seemed like they'd stumbled upon down in the catacombs. What they found was a 3,000 square foot complex strung with lights and wired professionally with both pirated phone lines and pirated electricity from the city power grid, like done by professionals. Uh, And on top of that, there was a full bar, a lounge, a workshop, a dining zone, like half a dining zone. It's like it was like not quite a restaurant, not quite a cafe, just like a little zone and a small movie theater. With seats for 20 people to sit and watch carved directly into the stone of the catacombs. Um, They also found a bizarre metal container filled with weird wires. They called in the bomb squad to check it out. Turned out it was a couscous maker. Um, What? what? (laughs) But yeah. So so after that first night where they found everything, they decided to go back uh, a few days later with some people from the EDF, which is like the state owned electrical. Yeah, the Earth Defense Force. They got some big guns. They (laughs) shot a bunch of bugs. Uh, No, it was a state owned electrical utility uh, to see what they could figure out about the like wiring job and how crazy that was. Uh, But this is just a couple days later, like three, four days later. They go back there. It's too late. Everything is stripped. All the wiring is gone. All the equipment is gone. Uh, All the food and alcohol supplies have vanished. Everything is bare. And sitting in the middle of the empty room was just a small, simple note with a small, simple command on it. Ne cherchez pas, which basically just translates to do not look for us. Uh, And uh, they were just absolutely flabbergasted. People were sensationalized by this when it happened. And there were all types of theories about who was really behind this. Uh, But I guarantee you that while I I really don't have an explanation what was going on down there, what I do know about it is probably already weirder than you can imagine. Uh, And now I have to talk. I'm thinking rich people, super rich people. Well, it's okay. So I have to talk directly about events of the article, too, in a little a little bit here, because the writer's experience is kind of like part of this story uh, and like kind of illustrates what the mystery is a little better here. Um, And uh, yeah, so Shawn Michaels, the writer, uh, exploits some quote unquote journalism connections uh, to meet this guy named Lazar Kuntzman, who often represents this group to the media. 
but that's probably not his real name. And he's super mysterious and stuff. And he says the group that made the cinema is called La Mexicaine de la Perforation, which means it's not a direct translation, but it translates to something along the lines of like the Mexican Consolidated Drilling Authority. What? Um, and it's and it's okay. It's like a fun, whimsical name, and it's based on a bar in the same arrondissement as the play, uh, Place de Mexico, right? So it's like it's like a bar. It's like this group. They're called uh, the the Mexican Drilling Authority. Uh, but the even crazier thing is that he says this is simply one subgroup that's about twenty or thirty people of about ten subgroups that there are in total that all make up a larger group of between a hundred and 150 people called UX, like UX, but in French, uh, okay. which he says only remains secret out of necessity for their mission, uh, but has nothing in common really with anything like the Bohemian Grove, which we talked about a couple months ago with Davis or eyes wide shut or anything like that. It's not really that type of vibe. He says UX is is more of a group motivated by the concept of being a, quote, counterpoint to an era where everything is slow and complicated. Uh, But also they want to remain very patient and dedicated and meticulous and serious about what they do. And that also regularly, discreetly and efficiently realize all kinds of different projects without asking any sort of official permission. So they're like a very organized and very, very efficient secret society that just does things around Paris. Uh, most of this has to do with transforming abandoned places into venues for new kinds of experimental and exciting experiences. They stage plays illegally in places after hours uh, at the movie theater that uh, I was talking about earlier. They screened like urban exploration films and also repeatedly uh, like the third policeman or whatever that movie's called like movies like that they would like show them in this theater for people Mm. um and uh they've been doing it all over the place not just in the catacombs uh and they seemingly have access to anything and everything they would ever need to have special access to get to it uh and there's a lot more non-mysterious stuff to go into here about how old paris is as a city you know Compared to anything that we have in America, it's like, you know, a thousand years old or more kind of in a way. Like, I mean, London is just across. I've never been to Paris, but London is just across the water from it. And I got out of a subway station and I was like reading a memorial to like a fire that happened in the like 12th century or something. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It's fucked up. You know, it's like a very old place. Uh, And there's also like because of that, there's like a mainstream knowledge and relationship that a lot of people in Paris have with not urban exploration in the like larger sense, but just specifically with like doing that in the catacombs and getting obsessed with going in the catacombs and like a large percentage of young people at one point would like go down there and get wasted in the catacombs for parties. It's like a very normal thing that people do in, it's like the LA river or something. It's just sort of like a place people go sometimes. That's kind of just like, uh, you know, international waters kind of vibes. Right. Um, and the police really do have to like patrol it, shut down sections of it that get too popular from time to time. So that's the vibe. Right. Uh, but that's not mysterious. That's just kind of like you kind of need to know that just to understand what's going on here more clearly. Uh, they also this group takes exception to being lumped in with the more normie type of like catacomb file catafile fanboy types. They call them raviolis like that's their like muggle term. Oh. <laughs> 
They call them raviolis because they love to eat like Chef Boyardee ravioli when they're like doing their little like ex- delicious. Like, you know, you go exploring in the caves and then you like bust out your little can of ravioli to eat when you're sitting in a little fucking hole somewhere in the Do in that the all the time on uh, like my survival video games anyway. They just make fun of them for like <laughs> doing that. Uh, and uh, because according to them, a lot of those people are like unhinged or dangerous. Uh, like there's this one legendary prankster thief dude who's called the Painted Lizard who sometimes pranks people by sealing up their exit that they planned on leaving from when they're exploring the catacombs or like jumping them and beating the shit out of them or like stealing their lights or just like a prank. That's just assault. (laughs) He like dressed like a Nazi, walked around screaming and being just like edgy in that way. Oh, so funny. (laughs) So they, they see these, they see the normal people, like the normal explorers kind of like more like weird dick punk ass people. And they see themselves as a little bit more intellectually motivated and artistically motivated. Uh, but like I said, La Mexicaine de la Perforation is supposedly just their like event crew. Events, okay. special events. Uh, but there's also like a map making crew uh, that maps mm. the catacombs. And there's a key making crew that like copies keys to important buildings around Paris and there's an all female Ugh. infiltration crew called the mouse house that like is completely just dedicated to sneaking around and a crew specifically dedicated to secret restoration projects around the city that are called the Untergunters. Um, this is such a weird group. I know. And they all share one email address and there's no like glory in it. They're not trying to get famous. Uh, they just love celebrating these ideas and hinting a little bit so that people are interested and go seeking it out without telling people who don't want to work for it. And it helps them to be anonymous to achieve their goals without anybody getting in trouble. And so that's kind of what they do. Um, and anyway, I just mentioned the Untergunters a second ago, the, the uh, restorers. Yeah. Uh, but just to give an idea of how crazy this is, here's like a little anecdote about them. That's like insane to me. Uh, the Untergunters keep a list of slowly dilapidating things all over the city that's like longer than they'll ever be able to like finish, you know, but every year, once or twice, if they have something that they deem achievable and that they have the manpower to do and that they have the time to do, they will quickly, quietly, secretly and efficiently take care of it. Right. Mm. So one year they decided they wanted to fix the clock in the Paris Pantheon building. Uh, which has been broken since the 60s. Uh, And they already had the keys copied to the building because it was a building that they'd already used to stage some plays and have some screenings there after hours when no one was around for their like weird japes at night. Um, They started observing the building and learning the guard patterns. And then eventually they climbed up inside and set up a base inside uh, the building at the base of the dome, like up inside, like on a second level on the base of the dome they had like a permanent workshop there that they used for a year um as they as they slowly but surely repaired the clock and even like busted missions over the months into other parts of the building after hours sneaking around the guards to steal parts of the clock that they needed from various secret locations in the building Right. This is this is such a bizarre. I like them. I like the group. I'm not going to lie. I love that. This is how they operate. This is fucking insane. Uh, So they got into an antagonistic relationship with the assistant director of the Pantheon building who like hated them. And even though they finished the clock and presented it to the building, uh, eventually they decided they had to like present it to them because they couldn't just like hang it. Yeah. So it was never put up, though, because it was embarrassing for the for the building to admit 
that the citizens had to like take the restoration of the clock into their own hands. Yeah. So that pissed off uh, Uix. And so on one Christmas Eve, they broke in and they put that shit up themselves <laughs> on Christmas Eve because that was like one of the only days that like there's no guards in this place. Yeah, I can imagine it's like nobody there. Yeah. So after Christmas break, though, the assistant director guy comes back uh, and he eventually becomes the director at some point. I can't remember when, but he like get, takes over and they're like, fuck, he's the boss now. Uh, and he came back from Christmas break and he immediately unmounted the, the fixed clock and he actually sabotaged. He took a part out of it because oh because they brought a clockmaker in to destroy it. And the guy was like, I refuse to like. Destroy this clock. It's beautiful. I can't. <laughs> They're like, no, not going to happen. So he's like, fine, just fucking. Maybe he worked on it. Maybe he wouldn't even know. He's like, fine, just take it apart. I don't give a fuck. Just take it apart. Um, but anyway, things take a crazy turn in this story at this point, because suddenly the dude realizes that Lazar Kuntzman, the guy who's like been telling him about this in the in the yep. in the article, he is the painted lizard. He finds out that that oh, same guy what? is also the painted lizard. And actually, they're the same guy. And when he confronts him about it and he confronts some people who know that guy about it, they reveal, they say, oh, okay, well, you got us. It's actually just about 20 of us. And Kuntzman has been like exaggerating and romanticizing it to build it up because he's crazy. Uh, So, you know, don't worry about it. But then the writer also gets a message from one of the Untergunter people himself. uh, It's actually a chick um, who tells him that Lazar is actually not a liar, crazy person, but that he's actually the leader of a group within UX, another another one of the groups that is a like PR and media focused group that he and he purposefully acts erratically and tells conflicting stories and creates various backstories and characters <laughs> to occlude the truth and make it harder for people to figure out what's actually true. Huh. Uh, and that what he's doing his job only and he's not like being dishonest. He's like it's like part of their weird plan and that they really are like 150 organized people who do things. Uh, so obviously the explanation where it's a small group of people that's uh, lying is more realistic. But they also are able to do a bunch of insanely complex and daring. Also, they made a fucking clock. That's yeah, so like Fight Club they- vibes, right? Yeah, and I would fight club for the city. Yeah, and because of that, I would be just as willing to believe that they really are that far reaching. Like if they can completely restore a clock, install it in the in the uh, in the building, get somebody at the power utility to like wire phone lines and electricity to their fake movie theater. They got to be doing like there's got to be something to this, right? They have to have connections. Yeah. Deep connections. Um, But yeah, I feel like I'm still fucking nailing it. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're only what? Three, four in, no, but yeah. you're nailing it. I feel like I'm nailing it. This is going to be a two parter. I think don't, you know what? You know, no comment. How about that? <laughs> Let's just 13 it. and we're all, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, but I realized that these are all just kind of like, they are mysterious and they are mysteries, but they're not that unexplainable. I realize I'm no, I'm noticing that at this point in the list. Uh, so I need, I really need to get into the realm of stuff. That's truly inexplicable. Jesse, take it away. This is number four. Number four. And it's called The Incident at the 3M Factory. The Incident at the 3M Factory. Yeah. 
And I love this one because it's actually more like an X-File than the other Ooh. ones we've done so far today, mostly because I have an article here from a research engineer called William J. Beatty, who is a specialist in electrostatics, uh, who reported going to a panel in the 90s at an electrostatics symposium where a guy called David Swenson, who worked for the conglomerate corporation 3M, uh, and he had a he had a crazy story about this one time where he was doing a safety check or something at an at a 3M adhesive tape plant. OK, so this is mm-hmm. like the plant where they make like tape, like, you know, sticky tape. Uh, anything. Anyway, the whole thing's not very long. So, Mathis, I'm going to have you read Mr. Beatty's version right now in its entirety, if you don't mind. OK, OK, OK. It's not too bad. I'm going to see if I can drop it in Zoom. And if not, we're going to have to try Twitter. So just bear with me. Yeah, it's too big for Zoom. So I'm just going to drop it right into Twitter. So just get ready for that. Uh, I'm, I'm more than ready to read and, the birth and, of a superhero and, sticky tape. Yeah, man. and for this one. Like, kind of like, give it like a like Dharma Initiative vibe. The hell's Dharma Initiative? It's from Lost. Don't worry about it. I forgot. Oh, I've seen a few episodes man, of the Lost. Wrong guy. Forgot yeah, you haven't man. seen anything. It's okay. I only play video games, and that's it. How about Lost by Adamus for Xbox 360? A wonderful Never video game. It, so, <laughs> all right, here we go. Uh, we'll read. Yeah. David Swenson of 3M Corporation describes an anomaly where workers encountered a strange invisible wall in the area under a fast moving sheet of electrical electrically charged polypropylene film in a factory. This invisible wall was strong enough to prevent humans from passing through. A person near this wall was unable to turn and so had to walk backwards to retreat from it. So like he's like he like magnetically stuck facing yeah. the wall. Yeah, he had to like okay, all right. Yeah, he couldn't like orient himself that way. This occurred in late summer in South Carolina, August 1980, in extremely high humidity. Propylene film on on 50,000 50, foot rolls, fit 20 feet wide, was being slit and transferred to multiple smaller spools. The film was taken off the main roll at high speed, flowed upwards 20 feet to overhead rollers passed horizontally 20 feet and then downwards to the slitting device where it was spooled onto shorter rolls. The whole operation formed a cubicle shaped tent with two walls and a ceiling approximately 20, uh, 20 feet square. The spools ran at 1000 feet a minute or about 10 miles an hour. The probably propylene film had been manufactured with dissimilar surface structure on opposing faces. Contact electrification can occur even in similar materials if the surface textures or microstructures are significantly different. The generation of a large imbalance of electrical surface charge during unspooling was therefore therefore not expected and is a common problem in the industry. Static cling in the megavolt range. And to be clear, it's not unexpected. Like this is all trackable science and stuff that regularly happens with this type of stuff. It's just a remarkable and powerful version of it. Huh? On entering the factory floor and far from the equipment, Mr. Swenson's 200 is that kilovolts of what is that? KV? Yeah, it's a, I don't know. KV yeah. per foot handheld electronic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mr. Swenson's 200 kilovolts per foot yeah. tricorder handheld electro- electrometer was found to slam to full scale. When he attempted to walk through the corridor formed by the moving film, he was stopped about halfway through by an invisible wall. He could lean all his weight forward, but was unable to pass. He observed a fly getting uh, a fly get pulled into the charge, 
moving plastic and speculates that the E-fields might have been strong enough to to suck in birds. The production (laughs) manager did not believe Mr. Swenson's report of the strange phenomena. When they both returned to the factory floor, they found that the wall was no longer there. But the production workers had noticed the effects of uh, as occurring early in the morning when humidity was lower. So they agreed to try again another day. The second attempt was successful, and early in the morning, the field underneath the tent was strong enough to raise even the short, curly hair of the production manager. The invisible wall effect had returned. He commented that he didn't know whether to fix it or sell tickets. Yeah. So this is literally a official account from an official guy who officially measured this. A force field. Of a spontaneous force field generation created by electrostatic discharge at a 3M factory from the creation of adhesive tape Uh, at the sticky note place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I have, I have, there's some comments on the article uh, that give like a little bit more insight. These comments are from 2016. I'll give these to you, Jesse and zoom here. There's the first one. Uh, Here's here's one for you to read. All right. Uh, Have a relative sort of who works at a 3M plant. Shit still occasionally happens. You can't just say that and go away. Is this a, is that indentation indicated as a different person? I think he's like a reply. I think he's like creating like a, like a secondary character to like, Oh, oh, this is all one comment. You can't just say that and go away. How are you not irresistibly interested in that? I would have interrogated that relative so hard. It just came up in passing at Thanksgiving. I don't really know him that well. He's an in-law. He mentioned being able to throw small washers and bolts at the field and watch them get repelled. People got interested, and so someone came with the voltometer, voltmeter, whatever. And uh, after throwing a couple more, they checked for voltage, and there was a residual charge after they finally caught on uh, a plastic. After they finally caught on a finally caught on on a plastic sheet to prevent immediate grounding. Okay. It also had a very slight magnetic field. It's apparently fairly common, but engineering hasn't come up with a solid explanation why. Yeah. So Hmm. just another account from somebody who also knows somebody in 3M factory that says that, yeah, these fucking crazy, like scientifically inexplicable things are happening uh, during the creation of Mm. adhesive tape. Here's here's one for you, Mathis. Okay. Okay. Right in the zoom there. Yeah. Yeah. I met this guy at an ESD meeting in Austin once. He said the strength of the field maxed out his equipment at a distance so he couldn't get a maximum measurement. Hmm. After he published the paper, he was contacted by NASA and all the three letter and all the three letter agencies asking for more info. He wanted to experiment around with it, but no company had millions to throw into such a project. Presumably the government did. It had to be a pretty narrow window of temperature, pressure, humidity, etc. They kept the garage door open, so that's where the insects and sparrows got sucked in, which obviously ruined the product. He said it was actually known to the technicians for a while before he experienced it, and they were just kind of like, meh. Eventually, they fixed the grounding issue on the machine, and the problem never popped up again. Oop, I lost my place. That's it. There it is. Okay, that's it. It's just that David Swenson still does work in this field. Uh, Gotcha, um, gotcha. But yeah, there you go. It's a force field generated by Mm. tape. Uh, And if you don't think that sounds plausible... Uh, here is a clip that I got also from Beatty's article uh, that somebody shot in 2015 to give you an idea of how this works. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it's a it's a different spool. 
But just to give. Oh, yeah. You can see the electricity on pretty, it just from the spool cra- It's pretty crazy. And, and uh, yeah. I can see thick humidity. Maybe it's easier to transfer the electricity through the air that way yeah, or something. I, think I, don't it's, know. Yeah, I don't know exactly what it is, but yeah, it happens. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what that's. Hmm. It happened for sure. It happens regularly, according to people who work there. And the government is actively looking into it and kind of trying to figure it out and try to use it. So well, yeah, I'm sure they wanted like, yeah, try to make an actual force field that people just cannot get through no matter how hard they try that you could stop. I wonder if they could make one to stop bullets. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that insane? Cool. Uh, I love that because it's just, it is sci-fi. It really like, does. It's sci-fi come to it life. It just sounds like it's from lost. I don't know. Yep. Uh, but speaking of force, here is a totally other type of force for Jesse. Take it away. Number five, which is called the rabbit force. The rabbit force. Yeah, the rabbit force. The rabbit uh, force. This better be as good as I think it's going to be. Fox Force Five. Uh, no, okay. So <laughs> uh, in 1970, uh, there was this book published called Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, it's all about insane Soviet Cold War era parapsycho- uh, parapsychology research. Uh, and it's been updated a lot of times over the years. It has all kinds of wild stories in it with things from like Curlian aura photography uh, to uh, telepathic emotional projection uh, to a story about the Pentagon turning to Russian psychics to try and control the thoughts of David Koresh during Waco, uh, which apparently all really happened. Uh but yeah, it was also the book uh, that first gave that CIA guy, Sidney Gottlieb, uh, the mm. idea to fund parapsychological experiments. It like inspired him to do it himself, uh, which led to a bunch of the like weirder men who stare at goats type stuff our government's done, which Mathis kind of touched on in his uh, MK Ultra uh, episode a little bit, kind of walked up to the edge of it like the LSD Wave experimenting uh, and, and, and like the thing where they investigated uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy who bends the spoons, uh, Yuri Geller, like how they spent oh, okay. like actual government money trying to figure out if he had powers. Fucking stupid. Um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. One of the things that's mentioned is a very particular Soviet experiment, uh, which was meant to help test a new solution for sending submarines a basic alert message that would let them know that they needed to surface and receive more specific important information from like a ship or the mainland. So it was basically like a initial buzz, like a page. It's like a pager for a submarine, basically, mm. uh, is, was, the, was what the technology was. You get the little buzz from this, from this technology and it means, all right, there's a real message waiting. Let's go get it, right? Uh, it's not a particularly juicy bit of information on its own, I realize. But the actual technology they were testing in this experiment, if you can even call it technology, was so fucking insane that I wouldn't have believed it, except that records of it were actually published in a report of Soviet and Czech parapsychology research by the DIA, which is the Defense Intelligence Agency, in 1975 uh, that was subsequently made available to the public in 2003. So this is verified. Uh, I'm obviously bearing the lead here to preserve the surprise. uh, But uh, Jesse, here's a couple paragraphs from that actual report. Uh, so we can hear it from as close to the source as is possible. This in uh, yeah, I'm gonna drop it in. Twi- I'm, gonna, I'm gonna drop it in Twitter here for you. Oh yeah, I gotta go open Twitter. Oh my god, too large of a file. All right. Honestly, I think it's just the formatting, but it's worth it. No, no, no editorial hanky panky here. This is just pure quotation from the real source. 
Dr. Pavel Nomov, who bears no relation to the now imprisoned Edward Nomov, conducted animal biocommunication studies between the submerged Soviet Navy submarine and the shore research station. These tests involved a mother rabbit and her newborn litter and occurred between ni- uh, around 1956, three years prior to the USS Nautilus disclosure. According to Naumov, Soviet scientists placed the baby rabbits aboard the submarine. They kept the mother rabbit in a laboratory on shore where they implanted electrodes, EEG, question mark, in her brain. When the submarine was submerged, assistants killed the rabbits one by one. At each precise moment of death, the mother's brain produced detectable and recordable reactions. As late as 1970, the precise protocol and results of this test described by Naumov were believed to be classified. Many examples can be found in Soviet literature dealing with dogs, bears, birds, insects, and fish in conjunction with basic psychotronic research. The Pavlov Institute in Moscow may have been involved in animal telepathy until 1970. Yeah, that's the dumbest fucking idea I've ever heard. So but that's the thing is that it actually fucking worked. So they took the baby. Rabbits. Well, I mean, work they, is a relative. Well, but I mean, there's an effect. They took baby rabbits down in a submarine and they had the mama rabbit in a laboratory. This is one of those like causality causation kind of like, I don't well, know. They killed they killed the baby rabbit and it yeah. caused brain activity in the mom. That's crazy. The, All I can say is like, even if it did work, like even if, yeah, we, I'm accepting it's still, there's a million better ways to do this. I <laughs> like there's it definitely didn't be. become the norm for sure. But no, no, clearly. Uh, but the, but there is seemingly something there. I know you're thinking this probably just all depends on whether or not you believe that telepathy exists in nature. Uh, but recently scientists at the university of Washington and Carnegie Mellon university invented a wild sort of like group brain to brain interface system. Between two groups where there's senders who can influence the decisions of receivers and all the receivers are blindly playing a game like Tetris with falling blocks, but only the senders, the other group can actually see the bottom half of the screen where the blocks are. So the, so the receivers can only see the blocks falling and it showed that when they kind of like shared their view telepathically, uh, it improved the performance of the uh, of the of the receivers every time, and they even had a control group where they did senders who were deliberately trying to send wrong information, and it actually did lower the results of those receivers. They actually performed worse than the ones that were trying to help their receivers. It's always interesting. Those studies to me are always fascinating because yeah. it's like, what do you do with that information? Like, what what can you what do you do next? Yeah, I mean, like, the one the one hang up with that is that it involves like staring at like flashing lights and stuff with like electrodes yeah. attached to your head. So it's not nearly as powerful as what these rabbits apparently have. Uh, but it's not completely out of the question that this actually happened. And we may actually be on the path to understanding it better. Pretty interesting. That is cool because it could lead to more studies on consciousness mean, in general. What are we understanding better? To like the idea of sending signals in a way that we don't understand that humans can communicate right now. Like, you know, th- people always talk about things like intuition and, and about instinct and like bad feeling spider sense type stuff. And it's a, it's a very surprisingly interesting field of research. Uh, yeah. And I just thought that this rabbit version with this sort of like 
you know, very clear effect is just a very good example of it. Uh, and it's just something that I think is so interesting. And I, I, I think bears some thinking about. Yeah. Jesse, I'm going to send you a number right now between one and 100. I want you to take a guess. What is the number I'm sending you telepathically? Number six. <laughs> close. Real close. <laughs> what was it? What was it? 71. If you, t- if you subtract one from seven, though. I mean, yeah, you're, you got part of it. Yeah, did you get chills? No, but we got I chills. Thought we were, I, thought we were, I thought it was a bit because we were on to the next one. Yeah, the next one is called <laughs> The Walrus at King's Cross. Number six, The Walrus at King's Cross. Uh, this one comes courtesy of Alex Foch at The Londonist, but let's just ignore how much that guy's name sounds This comes courtesy of famed reporter Alexi Foch. He's, like, a, right. he's, my British, he's my British doppelganger. He's, he's real. Uh, I don't remember if you were there, Mathis, uh, the year that we passed through the St. Pancras station in London. Uh, it's a very beautiful and impressive room. It's got like a big glass sort of arch that goes along the whole thing. It's like, yeah, yeah. Very like we a very did. famous. Yeah. Very famous uh, place. Very big, ornate station. Uh, and whether you've been there beautiful. or not, what you probably do not know is that it was only recently upgraded about 20 years ago as part of the channel tunnel rail link situation uh, where they made everything way bigger to accept the way bigger trains from Europe and stuff. Uh, and as per usual, when you randomly start digging in cities as big uh, as London and that have been around as long as London, like I said earlier, like it's been around a long fucking time, uh, you're going to run into some weird shit under the ground, uh, which is exactly what happened when archaeologists started excavating in the St. Pancras Old Church Cemetery, which was apparently used as kind of a mass grave in the early 1800s after a bunch of epidemics swept through London one after the other, like smallpox and typhoid and cholera and shit like Mm. that. Uh, And so first unsettling thing, they dug up 1500 dead human bodies. That's just, well, it's fucked up, but that was like not a surprise. They like were kind of expecting it and it just happened when they were doing this and it was really weird. But the second and much more unique unsettling thing was that they also found the bones of a single walrus buried along with eight men in a single coffin. Uh, And specifically, we're talking about the bones of a Pacific walrus, uh, which is extra strange because they are from the Pacific Ocean. And also today, they are an endangered species. Uh, So they were trying to get to the bottom of where the fuck this walrus could have come from, and they started to get into it. So this archaeological team reached out to the London Zoological Society, and the closest thing they could find to a Pacific walrus on record was when Prince Albert rode a tortoise one time, uh, and a couple stories about whale bones and ostrich bones, uh, but obviously that doesn't explain a fucking four-meter-long walrus uh, that weighs 2,000 pounds, uh, so... After a little more searching, they were eventually able to scrape together two possible candidates for who this fucking walrus could be, both of which lived in the London Zoological Gardens in Victorian times. Uh, The first one came through in 1853, and since it was such a cool trend at the time, uh, having only been legal for about 20 years for humans, uh, it just kind of became a thing for every type of animal that people would just dissect them all the time and just see what was going on. Uh, as soon as it became a thing that you could dissect humans for medical knowledge, 
people were like, I want to dissect a bear. I want to dissect a tiger. They were just like <laughs> going crazy dissecting shit because people were fucked up in Victorian times. Um, <laughs> and apparently that walrus was eventually dissected like around the corner from the St. Pancras old church. So that's one possible walrus. Uh, there is a second walrus candidate that came through the gardens about 15 years later. I was said to have survived a three month long voyage after being captured in the Labrador Sea over between Canada and Greenland. Uh, this one was called Jemmy. And apparently it also lived and died nearby St. Pancras in Regent's Park. And though it was known to be fairly uncomfortable around people and mostly kept away from interacting with people for that reason, some members of the public did sometimes buy Jemmy some fresh whelks and mussels to eat over at Billingsgate Market. So this is a character that people did see and we know is true and real. Uh, some other people believe that maybe the walrus came in as a trophy from an Arctic whaling vessel and was eventually dumped or uh, like maybe was like dumped there by criminals uh, and that the eight bodies found with it were also like body snatcher type mm. situation where they just like wanted like some organs for some reason or same thing with the walrus. Like maybe it's tusks or some kind of weird like a walrus asshole gets you a boner or something, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> Could be something like hey, that. Man. Um, oh, well, how often are you going to get a Pacific walrus out in the UK? You know, yeah, what I mean? exactly. Like, uh, and like you I, take it when you can get yeah, it. And like I say, dissection was only legalized in 1832. So there was an right. insanely high demand for bodies to legally cut up. And once they were used up, people would just literally throw them in a ditch. So it's fucked up. Uh, like I said, walruses also have ivory tusks, uh, which could be another reason why you would like dispose of a walrus body. Uh, but it's pretty much going to be a mystery where this walrus came from forever. And for some reason, I find that hilarious. Uh, this is a mystery walrus found in Yeah, England. and again, this is a totally Jesse-proof premise because not only is the whole scenario surprisingly plausible considering the context, but also you can actually go see this exact walrus today, just like the sword that they found when looking for the green stone because its bones are still on display at the London Archaeological Archive and Research Center in Hackney right now. Bam. It, it, uh, I, I can't fight this because I've seen weirder. When I was in... Uh, Mexico and Chichen Itza. There's literally, they have like an astrological sort of like observatory, like an ancient one. And on the side up going on the side of it are like carvings, like little, like jutting out from it. Gargoyle S carvings of animals. And literally one is an elephant and And there's no other thing in the world that that looks like it. It's straight up an elephant. And it's just like, there are no elephants in South America. How's that possible? Yeah. So yeah, you know, who knows? Think about and yeah. with that delightful nugget of information, I suppose, number one, that this was a completely Jesse Proof episode, Honk, Honk, Honk. It was and pretty I should, great, yeah. And, and I know, Ring the Jesse Proof bell. And I know, you, I know you're not going to believe this, but I'm going to reveal at this time that there are still seven more stories left for a grand total of Paranormal 13, and we will be covering those next week. Oh! In part two. Surprise. And spoiler, it's even more fucked up than this week. Uh, and also a teaser for today's mini sode, which by the way, will be live immediately after this episode goes up at patreon.com slash pod. I am going to be telling these guys about yet another weird corner story, which I took off the list. Once I realized that it was pretty much solved. Doesn't mean it's not still a very weird story, but I'm going to say it and it's going to be on the mini. So, so you're going to have to go get that if you want to go hear it, uh, or wait months and months and then it'll be out for everybody. And don't worry yeah. your call. I love you. Goodbye. I'm done. <laughs> well, all right. I love you too. Before we go, uh, two things I wanted to shill. Hey, we got a new t-shirt out there. Go get the t-shirt. It's only going to be out for 30 days and then it'll be gone. And, uh, 
You might see it as a poster later on, but if you want the t-shirt version, you've only got a month to go grab it. Um, on top of that, we've got a live show coming up October 26. A few tickets left out in the general place. We want to sell out. Please buy those tickets. We want to sell out. Even if you don't go, if you want to support us, buy the tickets. Who cares? I'm going to write confirmed. I'm writing a South Bay food guide that's going up on uh, Patreon. Patreon. It's going to go up on the Chiluminati Patreon for sure. And Jesse, you can put it on your Patreon too if you want. I don't care. This is going to end up like yeah. one of those things where when I went to San Antonio and they're like, oh, here's all the best stuff. And it was like the things that the driver's family owned. <laughs> <laughs> it's all Alex Faciana. Please go to my dad's restaurant. Uh, no. My, we'll make it public. It'll be a public post on Patreon so everybody can see it. We're not going to lock it behind yeah, anything. It's just so some to entice you to come to Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. And uh, last but not least, we have an Instagram now. So follow us over on Instagram. We got a lot of people who follow us on Twitter, but we got an Instagram now as well. What is it's on Instagram. Our Instagram? Who, what? Yeah, what goes up what on, is on our Instagram? Instagram? Uh, I've right now I've a merch drop stuff and uh, uh, episode announcement drops. Are there any like uh, sexy just, photos? Only of our last guest. Oh no, there's a sexy photos of us from the Boston Live show up there. Oh we yeah, I like, saw that. Yeah, nice. Yeah, All right, that's pretty great. sexy. Yeah, where we look completely trashed according to some people, but yeah, we probably I mean, were we at were, that particular so, point. Yeah, yeah we was, were. Uh, but uh, yeah, go follow us. Uh, help us help Boston's us out over a crazy on the, uh, town. Instagram. They know how to drink. Boston's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Time for mini. So thank you for listening, everybody. We will see you next week with part two of Alex's Dark Corners. No, weird corners. Bye. Weird corners. Weird corners. Dark weird and corners. weird corners. Very weird parts of the corners. So weird. So <laughs> dark. Who put that gum there? Where is that hair from? It's gross. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, me and my wife were sitting outside indulging on our porch one night, enjoying ourselves. I needed to go to the bathroom, so I stepped back inside, and after a few moments, I hear my wife go, Holy shit, get out here! So I quickly dash back outside, and she's looking up at the sky in awe. I look up too, and there's a perfect line of dozen lights traveling across the sky. (laughs) 